On this episode of Scammer Stories, an eye-opening experience for me, I recently posted a question on the Scammer Stories Facebook page. What's the number one scam worldwide that costs the most as far as totals go each year? No one got the answer right. Now, keep in mind the people on that page are journalists, romance scam experts, banking experts, even law enforcement. This is right now the biggest cyber intrusion fraud losses of all the different crimes out there. Roger calls it the business email scam. I get them at my work. We just had training on it a few weeks ago. You've heard from FBI veteran Roger Campbell on a previous episode on ATMs and gas pump skimmers. He's investigated a wide variety of scams, but we haven't talked about this one. And this is the one he really wants to talk about. We talk mostly on this podcast about romance scams, which we'll hear more about later. But Roger says this type of fraud is much, much bigger. The business email compromise, that's the one that you say is the big daddy. Let's talk about how you got involved in that. When I uh, transferred to our Norfolk office, the squad I worked was a cyber squad that investigated business email compromises. Again, this is in 2000. 12, 13 timeframe when I worked my first case. And now this is a lot more sophisticated than the romance fraud or ATM skimming. This is actual a cyber compromise of email. So let me just kind of give you the definition of what this email compromise is. It's when a hacker hacks into a corporate email account and then impersonates the real owner to defraud the company, the real owner of that email account. They want to defraud the company, its customers, by getting them to send money to accounts controlled by the attackers. So kind of like this, you get an email from your boss that says you need to click on this link. You need to transfer these funds. So what they're doing is hacking into an email system and then having whoever handles the wire transfers, accounts payable, and having them tricking them into transferring money to an account controlled by them. But it gets much more complicated than that. This is right now the biggest cyber intrusion fraud losses of all the different crimes out there. This has the highest loss total. And I've seen estimates that U.S. companies are losing anywhere from $3.5 billion to $5 billion a year with this type of uh, crime. And why so, is the total so big? Big international companies transfer huge amounts of money all the time. So let's talk about the methodology a little bit of how this really happens. And it might explain why the losses are so high. Groups that are doing this are Eastern European or Nigerian. And the Eastern European, whether it's Russian, Ukrainian, they're the ones that are creating the malware to compromise the network of the email system. It's so easy now to learn about major companies online and everyone who works there with just a simple search. This all starts by the bad guys or the attackers researching companies. They learn about the companies through just open Google searches. They learn about the company. They'll sift through public available information from the websites, press releases, social media posts, anything that has to do with the company. They'll even go to SEC filings to learn the executives of the company, the hierarchy of the company. They could spend months just learning about a company before they attack it. 
Then once they learn about the company, then they determine whose email do they want to try to compromise within that company? Who would be the best person to get a hold of their email traffic? So then they do what's called phishing attempts. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Targeting specific people, it's called, they actually refer to it as spear phishing. So they're looking at the CEO, they're looking at a sales rep in that company and saying, we want to know what their email is saying. So they'll send them the phishing attempts of all the things that you've heard over the years, the emails that come in that may look like your cable company, um, you know, we have a problem with your bill, click on the link to see your bill. It could be phone company, it could be anything that they think might get that person to click on the link. So when they click on that link, Malware is loaded on their computer. And the malware, a lot of times, is more spyware. It captures keystrokes of that person that downloaded the malware onto the computer. So with the keystrokes, or it captures screenshots and passwords. So once they start getting that information, they're able then to log in to their network. So once they get on their victim company's network, they just sit there and they monitor email traffic. They see how the invoices are being paid, what the invoices look like, how much overseas invoices. You take a a multinational company, they could be paying invoices two, $3 million at a time, a wire transfer for that kind of money. So they're looking at all that and then they're very patient. Once they monitor for a month or two, then they determine, okay, what is our best strategy to get them to transfer money fraudulently? So there's a couple different ways they can do it. They can do a fake invoice scam. They can then send them invoices for $100,000, $300,000 to send it to their accounts payable with the bank account information of a bank that they control. So this company might receive 300 invoices a day. So these invoices are coming in, the accounts payable sees the invoice come in, sets the wire transfer to go the next day. And before they realize that it was a fake invoice, the money has been wired to a account controlled by the bad guys. And once it gets to that account, um, it's usually transferred to either China, Hong Kong, and the money's gone. Can these be mom and pop businesses too, or are these just big businesses that are targeted? They, they hit nonprofits. They hit small companies. Of course, they have to mediate the amounts of money they're going to get. A small company is not going to have a $2 million invoice come in or a $300,000 invoice come in. You know, they, they may go three or $4,000 at a time in a small company or the same with a nonprofit. Usually there's not a whole lot of money flow. So they have to, again, plan accordingly to how much money they're going to get. Even to go to a mom and pop or a small company, it's going to take still a lot of research, a lot of time. Again, they're very patient because they know the payoff could be big down the road. So they take that time. Then, you know, in addition to the fake invoices, a lot of times they impersonate the CEO. Think about this for a second. If you got an email from your boss asking you to pay a bill, odds are you wouldn't question him or her. They can get on their email. And again, they can do this one of two ways. Then it kind of branches out. If they're in the network, they can send an email directly from the CEO's account saying, hey, to the accounts payable, I want you to, I need you to pay this bill by tomorrow. The company called me and I told them they would pay tomorrow. The bad guy or the attacker has to be aware that if they're sending an email within the network, that it could be detected by the CEO. They might see it, something come out of his outbox. So what they do is they, a lot of times they'll get into the email system and they'll change the rules so that if he sends an email 
and the reply doesn't go back directly to the email account of the CEO, but they'll route it to an email account controlled by them. So it's not picked up or it's not doesn't alert the CEO that there's an email coming back to him that he knows nothing about. So, I mean, a lot of these attackers are very smart technologically. So they're able to get into your email system, make changes to hide their presence within the system. Or a lot of times what they do is they create a spoof domain. So let's say the company, their domain is flight.com, F-L-I-G-H-T. They'll go on to godaddy.com and they'll create a spoofed domain and they'll buy that domain. Instead of the L in flight, they'll put a number one. So it looks very similar. So it'd be F number one, I-G-H-T. So that together looks like flight. So then they'll create the same email address of the CEO, but with this fake domain. So again, they'll send that same invoice to the accounts payable saying, hey, I want you to pay this invoice by tomorrow. So when that accounts payable responds to him, it's going to a whole separate email account and not within the network of the company that they're defrauding. So it's less noticeable. So these guys are very, very smart. And that's why the losses are so great. Red different stories nationwide where one company has lost $54 million by this type of fraud. One company. The payoff's big. They do their research and they are very patient. In these cases, they're probably not getting their money back like in the credit card cases. No. If the money is transferred overseas, they usually have 24 to 48 hours they can contact their bank and recall that transfer. If they determine within 24 hours that it was a bad transfer or a fraudulent transfer, if they contact the bank, a lot of times the bank can pull it back. After 24 hours, it gets a little bit more difficult. After 48 hours, that money's gone and they'll never recover it. Now, sometimes some of these big corporations have insurance that might cover some losses to fraud um, that may help them. Unless you're working for one of these companies, your listeners you know, they're probably thinking, oh, this really doesn't affect me. But let me put it into a little bit more relevant terms for your listeners. Right now, over the last couple of years, they've really been targeting the real estate market. So what they do is they'll compromise a title company and they'll get the information, they'll monitor the email, and they're looking for the next home purchase. So you, April, as a home purchaser, okay, you, you bought a house, your closing is on Friday. You get an email on Wednesday from the title company saying, we just changed our banks. So why are your deposit to this bank? And it has all the same information you've been dealing with your title company for the last three months, getting ready for this purchase of a house. But they changed the bank. So please wire the money to this account. You there, you get ready to purchase. You send your $75,000 down payment, your $100,000 down payment to that number. You go into closing the next day or two days later, you sit there and they said, we never received your wire. And you said, what do you mean? I sent it two days ago. And then they, you find out that the money went to an account and that email was a fraudulent email by somebody committing a business email compromise and rerouting your deposit to a bank account that they control and the money's gone. When you buy a house, you drown in emails and paperwork. I could see that just kind of slipping on by. Yep. And they're well aware of how many emails you get. They put that one email in to transfer the money to this account. And by the time you realize it or the title company realize it, the money's gone. Looking back on buying my first and now my second home, this makes me sick. It's already emotional and so stressful when everything's on the up and up. So you, as the purchaser, now have no money. And because that home purchase is usually, for most people, that's all the money that they've been saving and all the money they have for that big purchase of their house, and now it's gone. 
Oh, that would be devastating. It's hard enough you find one you love and then it's gone and then something like that happens. And then do those people get their money back? No. Now, you know, we, we do the investigation. A lot of times they'll call the FBI. We do the investigation or a local police or state police does the investigation and determine the money went. We can follow it from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Boston, Massachusetts, and then it's gone. Now, a lot of times it becomes a civil matter of who's held liable. The person who purchased the house may sue the title company saying your computer security wasn't good enough that they were able to compromise your email and I was just following an email that I thought came from you. And so then it becomes a legal issue, uh, more of a civil issue on who's going to pay for it, who's going to suffer the losses in, that, in those side of circumstances. So again, even if they determine the title company is held responsible, it could be a year to two years before that's resolved. Yeah, you'd have to rent someplace for two years. Okay, so right. how do we know? What are some ways to protect ourselves, companies and individuals? There's one way to protect yourself, and it's pretty solid. Before you ever transfer money, you make phone contact and talk to that person. You know that number to that title company. You've been talking to them for, who knows, the three months up until that closing date. You call them up and say, look, I just got this email that says transfer the money to this account. Is that your account number? Pick up the phone and call. Even if you think it's legit, call. One phone call could prevent 90% of these BECs. People are in a hurry. Email comes in. They go to their bank to make that transfer. I need to transfer this money to this routing number, this account number by tomorrow. Please do it. And in today's world, everybody wants to work through texting and through emails versus talking to people. And I just refinanced my house last month. And when I went to the title company, this was kind of interesting. They were a victim. This title company was a victim several, I think it was actually a year earlier. And the title company will no longer wire money out of that title company. If you sell a house through that title company and you know, you have $300,000 in proceeds, they will not wire that money to your bank account. They will send you a certified check that next day that you'll receive the day after of that $300,000 or whatever you sold your house for, whatever the proceeds were. I mean, they changed their processes when they got burned that they will not wire money any longer. So not wiring money is probably not realistic for a lot of companies, of course, but um, that's how much it changed them. What is the realistic answer here? What would have to happen to fix this? Like I said, every time would be a phone call. Just make a phone call. Before I sent money to a title company, I called them just to make sure I had the right account number and I had the right routing number before I sent money. If you, any of your listeners are ever wiring money, whether it's to a business, whether it's to a title company to purchase a house, make that phone call ahead of time to verify the numbers. And you can look up their number you know, through Google to make sure that in the email that they sent you, there isn't a fraudulent number that you think you're talking to the title company, but you're talking to the attacker or the bad guy. And he's telling you, yeah, that's the correct number. You know, Google the, the company just to verify you have the right phone number, make that call and verify before you wire money. So when you were working on these cases, were you ever like embedded <laughs> or, or did you work them after the fact? Those type of cases are usually after the fact. And BECs are very, very difficult to prosecute because, all right, so let's say they used a spoof domain. 
So they had to register that do- domain at GoDaddy or one of the domain registry companies. So we go to that company, send them the subpoena, and we went, we want to know who registered this domain. And you're going to find out that it's all fraudulent, fake information that they use to register the domain. They paid for it with a stolen credit card. We lose the ability to track the bad guys through the credit card payment of the domain. They're very smart very difficult. These are very difficult cases to to prosecute. Did you ever speak to the victims? Oh, all the time. And they're the ones who would call. Oh, what was Um, that like? That had to be heart-wrenching. It is. I mean, you go in there and the one I can remember specifically is I went into the company and it was the accounts payable person who was the owner's administrative assistant. The company probably had 10 employees. So it was a very small company. She had wired $180,000 wire based on an email she thought it was from the owner. So I'm sitting there talking to her with the owner present, who the company just lost $180,000. And it was a small company. So that's a big chunk of money for a small company. You know, so she's sitting there. I can just kind of see she felt horrible. You know, she's, I mean, she make cost this company to close down. You know, the the email that she received was so good. It was all the right verbiage that the owner would have used to told her to wire this money to this company. And she did it. And, you know, especially somebody that's administrative assistant is going to be very hesitant to question an email from the owner of the company, you know? So, but the right thing for her would have done was to call him up and say, Hey, I got this email from you. You want $180,000 transferred to this company. Is that correct? And He would have said, what are you talking about? And that may have prevented it. Like I said earlier, just this month, my company trained us on this type of scam. At the end, we took a quiz. I think I'm pretty versed in the scamming world, but I only got 80% of the answers correct. You know, we try to get the word out. Uh, We do a lot of public service announcements to real estate companies, to companies that you just need to verify the information by phone, in person, before you make those transfers. And you know, it, it falls on a lot of deaf ears and, you know, people are busy in the, a given day, a lot of emails coming in and companies still continue to lose money through this fraud. So before we move on to romance scams, call, call, call. Always verify with your boss. The story of the administrative assistant is heart-wrenching. Speaking of heart-wrenching, Roger was kind enough to take time to answer the questions I still have after my mother was scammed out of $350,000 in a romance scam before her death in March. This is the one I think you're probably most familiar with. I think you you have some friends that were victims or something or family mm-hmm. members that may have been a victim. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so let's just kind of put it out there what we're talking about when we talk about romance fraud scams. And this occurs when a criminal adopts a fake online identity to gain a victim's affection or trust. Then the scammer uses this to manipulate them or to steal from the victim. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Now, I've worked at probably six to 12 of these in my career, and these are very heart-wrenching cases. A lot of the bad guys are Nigerian. This originates in Nigeria and Ghana. Why are so many of these scammers from Nigeria? There are plenty of poor countries. What the heck? What's interesting about Nigeria is they're very, very educated. Even though it's more of a poorer country in West Africa, a lot of the people are very well educated. They're very computer savvy and there's just no employment for them. So they, a lot of them turn to fraud because they can make so much money in this realm. And a lot of them don't even have access to their own computer in their house. 
they go to what we call internet cafes, these big rooms with computers. They pay you know so much money to be online at that internet cafe for three, four hours a day, eight hours a day, however long they want while they're committing these scams. So again, this also makes it very difficult for law enforcement because we end up tracing it back through IP address or whatever information we get, and it's coming to an internet cafe in Ghana or Nigeria. That's a good point, because so, I'm always wondering, why can't they just track down the IP address and when you've got what, then, 10, 20 people in an internet cafe, and then you've got to investigate all every single one of those people? Right. And and there, there, there are ways that they mask the IP address quite frequently, too. I mean, they, they have us going all over the world through their masking their IP addresses. You know, some of them don't even bother because it comes back to a small internet cafe and they know it's very difficult for us investigators to identify somebody in that internet cafe. And then you can't go arrest them because it's not in your jurisdiction. Right. And and depends on how cooperative the foreign country is when we identify somebody there. You know, Nigeria, Ghana, sometimes they talk a good game of being cooperative, but when it comes down to arresting them for us, even when they're identified, Sometimes it's difficult. And then when they do arrest them, then to get them extradited to the United States is also very difficult. What Roger has to say next is what I hear a lot. It's also something I like to hear. But, you know, what, what I feel for the victims of a romance fraud scam is that a lot of the victims of fraud that we deal with are let's take some of the Nigerian fraud scams that other people get involved with, whether it's the prince scam where they want you to transfer money into your account and you'll hold that money for a certain amount of time and they'll pay you quite a bit of money or whether it's these lottery scams that are originating in Nigeria. Most of the people that get caught up in these scams are in it to make money. The romance scam victims, they're providing their heart and then of course their money and all they're looking for is a good relationship and it turns out to be all fraudulent. But let me talk about when I first started working these cases. And I, I think some of your listeners may have the same attitude. One of the questions I get when I investigate these cases, let's say if I talk about it with neighbors or friends or different people, I get the question, is it really a crime because the victim voluntarily sent the money? And then I also get kind of this attitude that if somebody is willing to send money to somebody they never met in person, then they deserve to lose that money. When I worked my first case, you know, I have to say in my mind, some of that was kind of in my mind until I actually went out there and talked to the victim. Does anybody really deserve to lose money that's providing it willingly? Of course not. So, you know, even though you kind of get those comments or people rolling their eyes, how can somebody send money? Until I started talking to the victims, I didn't really understand the psychology behind it. After I talked to four or five different victims and I heard the same stories over and over again, there's more to it than just one person that deserved to lose the money. What I found, and I think everybody kind of realizes, is the victims are primarily female in a romance fraud scam. They're generally widowed or divorced, usually over 40, and they're lonely they're vulnerable. And a lot of times they came from bad marriages to begin with. So they came from non-loving relationships. And when this person is showing them the attention that they've craved for years, a lot of times they make that connection 
And it's almost like they're back in high school again, just with that feeling of a relationship that they haven't experienced in a lot of years. So they get caught up in it. And, you know, the, the longer the relationship goes on, the more this person starts telling them how great a person they are, how much they love them. And they just get so entwined with this relationship that they don't see a lot of other things. They don't see the potential of fraud. Now, my very first victim I went out and spoke to, I went out there because a coworker called us and said she met somebody online and now she's sending all kinds of money. It just doesn't sound right to me. Can you take a look? I went out there and talked to her. got a lot of information from her and I started just going back and doing some investigative queries. And I came back to her and I said, hey, this doesn't sound right. I don't think that person you're talking to is who they say they are. So I think it's probably better that, you know, you kind of end this relationship. A couple of weeks later, the coworker calls me up again and says, I think she's still sending this guy money. I think we all need to hear this. Romance scam victims and their loved ones like me. The FBI will come to your house. So I went out there a second time and told her, you're being defrauded. I came right out and said, look, you're being defrauded. You need to stop this. She would not believe me. She said, I've been talking to this guy for a year. I know he is who he says he is, and I'm going to continue this relationship. It wasn't until she took a second mortgage out of her house, she maxed out four credit cards, that she learned that it was all a fraudulent relationship. Guess what happened? I'm telling you guys, it's an addiction. So afterwards, she's now working a second job just to pay the second mortgage on her house, as well as her credit cards. So that psyche that even when a law enforcement officer is coming to her and telling her, you know, you're being a victim of a fraud here, they don't believe it. Now, you were able to go out there to speak with the victims because your office was a little bit smaller. Yes. Our office is one of the smallest offices. Again, it depends on the resources that your office has at the time. If we had some major crimes going on at the time, we might not have had the personnel, such as myself, to go out and speak to her on kind of a low-level, you know, romance fraud case. But fortunately, we had the time. We were able to go out there and talk to her. It's funny because a lot of people think these victims are going on, these dating apps, looking for people. A lot of the contact is made initially through something like Facebook Messenger. They may not have even been on a dating site. You know, they just uh, get a, a message on Facebook that somebody has seen their profile. Bad guys saw her profile and said, you know what? she might be a good target. It says on her Facebook page that she's recently divorced or she's recently widowed and wham, sends a message and just said, Hey, out of the blue, I'm so-and-so. I saw your picture. Would you like to chat? And then, so it wasn't even that the victim was looking or had their information on a dating site and ended up being a victim of romance fraud. I still have so many unanswered questions after my mom's scam. Most reasonable people do. Here's how Roger explains it. Maybe it'll help someone. Anyone. How do these guys trick these women into believing who they are? You know, how can a relationship go on for a year that they never meet, yet she still believes that person is who they say they are? And a lot of times what they do is they'll take on the profile of a military person. So that keeps them overseas when the victim might say, hey, can you come here and we can meet and go out? And, and well, I'm on deployment. I can't get away. Or If it's not military, it's usually a U.S. person in another country working on a construction project. 
and I just can't get away. They're the two kind of identities that the bad guys will take on because they have logical reasons why they can't meet in person. Now, what about, you know, video conferencing? This was my biggest question during my mother's scam. She told me over and over again that he has to be real because they video chatted. At the time, I didn't have the answer. I was still very new to this game. Although I did ask if I could be there once. She said she wasn't ready, which to me means that deep down she knew he wasn't real. One of my victims, whose person was supposedly overseas, said, I would like to video conference you, but the network, the internet access is so bad here that it doesn't support video conferencing. So now they can't see each other. They're only texting or they're only emailing. And that goes on for months and months and months. Once the relationship starts developing, what the bad guy does is see if they can get the victim on the hook. So the, one of the first things they will ask for is, hey, I'm here in this country. The internet's not very good. I don't have a lot of money to keep our communications going. Can you send me a Google Play card with some money on it so I can use it for my phone? Or can you send me a laptop or a phone, an iPhone, because my phone's going bad. I don't have the money, but I really want to keep talking to you. So that's usually the first thing that they ask for, something to keep the communication going. And if the person is willing to provide that, then they realize they have somebody on the hook. If the person says, you know, I really don't know you very well. I'm not sending you a $400 phone or I'm not sending you a $100 Google Play card so you can use the internet to talk through voice over IP or anything. If they can't get that, then they'll move on to somebody else. But many times if the relationship is developing, that person will provide, you know, that phone or, you know, $100. So once that happens, then the victim will be asked progressively for bigger and more expensive things. And, you know, at that point, they may ask for money because they had to go on, had needed emergency surgery, you know, something might happen. I, I just slipped and fell. I'm in the hospital. I can't pay my hospital bills to get out. Can you provide money? So my mom scammer said he killed someone in a car crash and was in jail. He needed bail money or he couldn't get his passport back to come home to her. And they just generally ask for more and more and more over the relationship until they can't get any more money out of the person and then they move on to somebody else. So that's kind of the progression of how people get hooked in to these. And again, starts low amounts of money and until they're taking a second mortgage out on their home or they're getting credit cards if they don't have the money to max it out. That's how much they are just involved in this relationship. They don't want it to end, that they're willing to you know, send all this money. And the one thing that I was kind of surprised after my mom died a few months ago and I was looking through her phone, she got several credit cards, just like you said, but her credit was shot. How is she still able to get, how are these credit card companies still giving her a card? It's, it's amazing. Getting a credit card is not very difficult. Even if you have bad credit, what the credit card company does is charge you a much higher interest rate. You might be paying 22% on any money that you charge on that credit card or take out in cash advance on that credit card, but they're willing to take a chance that they'll get some of the money back and they're charging you a huge amount of interest. So that's how, that's how credit card companies are willing to, you know, provide you with that credit. Now they're all calling wanting their money. And one of my favorite responses is, Oh, she's dead. (laughs) One of the, one of the representatives actually said, Oh, is the family having a service? What? 
Now they're calling my dad, they're calling her aunt, they're calling every family member they can find. Once they determine that you're willing to give money, they put you on what they kind of refer to as a sucker list. And they will send that victim's name and number out to other people committing fraud. So once you're done with the fraud, somebody will come at you with a different type of fraud to try to get you to send money as well. Again, they're, they're very patient. They're very organized. Um, they're very diligent. And they will do anything they can to relieve you of your money. And mom admitted to me before she died that she was talking to three different scammers. I wonder if her information was shared with those other scammers who contacted her. Oh, absolutely. Once one person gets the information and they can sell it, they can sell it to other people. I don't know what they sell it for, how much they get, but you know, a lot of times they won't do it until they feel like the well's drying up for them. And then they will send the information out to other people. I met my husband, don't laugh, but um, I met my husband on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a reporter. I, I, people are appalled. It actually turned out good. But more and more people are now getting online to find people. And I see this only getting worse. Well, there is nothing wrong with dating sites. Nothing at all. My advice would be if somebody is not willing to meet you within two weeks of meeting them, move on to somebody else. I mean, there's all kinds of relationships developed through the Internet and through dating sites and a lot of successful ones. Again, if they unwilling to meet you, then that would be the first red flag. The other red flag is after a month or two, they're asking you for something monetarily and you've never met them. You know, if you can get over those two, you know, the Internet's a great place to meet somebody. Yeah, I met him within the first week. So, yeah. Right. I mean, he, I mean, and of course, you want to be safe with that. You want to meet for the first time in someplace public. You're easily can walk away from if you know, things don't work out. You have to realize there's a lot of stalkers on the internet too. So you don't want to end up with somebody like that. I really did a deep dive on the internet before I met him. Everything that I could find on him. Good. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing your research prior to meeting somebody. Yes. And I would highly recommend anybody does that. Yeah. There's so much available online now that you can find out about people. Right. You can find out uh, if they've been arrested for what. I mean, some of these services might charge you $19.95, $15.95 to get some more of that more personal information, but it's all out there in databases. You just got to know where to find it and how to get it. So what do you see happening with this then? What's the answer besides telling lonely women not to respond to a good-looking man's message? <laughs> um, <laughs> again, the best advice I can give, if they're not willing to meet you in the first week or two, then there's obviously an issue there. Why wouldn't they want to meet you as much as I think me as, as the male side of it, I would want to see what you're like and what your personality is like in person as much as you do to the male side. And do you see the FBI putting more resources into this as it grows, you think? What do you predict on that? You know, I, I don't know. From what I've read recently, it's about a 200 to $300 million fraud a year. Where there's so like I like you take a look at those business email compromises, that is you know a, a one plus billion dollar fraud a year. Again, we're going to probably the FBI is going to put its resources where it has the most bang for the buck, and you know these bigger frauds, these bigger fraud schemes are going to get more attention than romance fraud schemes. I think the average person in romance fraud scam loses you know I, I want to say forty to fifty thousand dollars maybe. I know there's a lot 
higher cases than that, but on average, I think it's only forty or fifty thousand, which again is even difficult if you identify the person and that's the only victim that you've been able to identify, even to get the U.S. Attorney's Office interested in prosecuting it would be difficult. And again, the fact that a lot of them go back to Nigeria, Ghana, or overseas, it's it's a hard sell for us anyway to get the U.S. Attorney's Office involved in these type of cases. Our U.S. Attorney here in our part of the country is getting involved. He's doing some really good work. They just busted five people just like 30 miles from me a few months ago. So Good. Yeah, I'm glad but... to hear that. Again, you know, unfortunately, with everything, it comes down to resources and what, what's available. And even at the time, you know, of the complaint coming in. You said that you weren't able to get through to that one victim until she was really out of a lot of money and had a second mortgage. I asked my mom before she died, I said, is there anything that I could have said to you that would have made you stop? And she said, no. And I said, is there anything you can think of? Yeah. I mean, it took, I mean, I went out there three times and I'm law enforcement saying, Hey, you're being scammed. And you know, they're just so entrenched in these relationships that they can't see it. You know, again, it's that psychological connection. It just has such a hold over them. You know, so, and they're, you know, obviously they're very good at what they do. And then when they're questioned by a law enforcement saying you're being defrauded and they continue to make those payments, it's almost like they're brainwashed. Exactly. Bingo. With the victims that you were involved with, did you ever think about arresting any of them? The victims? Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, why would you think we would arrest a victim of a romance fraud scam? Well, if she was money muling? If they get involved in money mule activity, that's a little different than a straight out victim of a romance fraud. And one of my victims one time was asked by the bad guy, hey, can you bring some money into your account? Can you wire it to somebody else? And she did do that. And uh, again, we generally don't go after money mules. I mean, um, they're many times unwitting. They don't understand what they're getting themselves into. So we really don't want to prosecute them. And I think we talked about this before, what we did in our office and a lot of the FBI offices do. We go talk to them. We provide them with a letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office saying, you need to stop this activity. It's illegal. You're actually laundering money for bad guys. And if you continue the activity, we will arrest you. And so that puts them on notice. And that is enough that 95% of the activity will stop. So Roger had a lot of really good advice here. And every time I hear from someone like him, it makes me feel a little bit better. I'm still getting over what happened. I'm still angry. I'll get there, but it hasn't even been a year yet. If you think that you're being scammed or maybe one of your loved ones, you can always email me. It's scammerstoriespodcast at gmail.com. And make sure you check out the Facebook page. Until next time, Scammer Warriors. <laughs>